and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Howard Kislowitz, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Calgary Faculty of Law. We will discuss his article, Recontextualizing Tunaha Nation and versus British Columbia Crown Land History and Indigenous History and Indigenous Religious Freedom, which was co-authored with Senwung Look and published in the Supreme Court Law Review. So, welcome to the show, Howie. I'm very glad to be here, Brian. Yeah, I know. So, this was really a fun paper to read, um, in part because it's a really interesting kind of both contemporary and historical story that you tell, and in part because honestly, I didn't know anything about Canadian freedom of religion law before reading the paper. And it provided a lot of really useful, useful context to me. Um, so I'm really looking forward to hearing more about the, the subject matter of the paper and sort of how this works uh, in, in a Canadian law law context. But I, I feel like a lot of U.S. listeners especially might be in the same position that I was, where they don't really know anything about uh, Canadian religious freedom law. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how religious freedom is protected in Canada and what the basis for protection is. Sure. Uh, so the the main lens that we look through in this paper is the constitutional lens. So like uh, the United States, Canada has a constitutional protection uh, of freedom and religion. Uh, ours is phrased a bit differently, and it's quite a bit younger. So our constitutional protection of religious freedom comes into effect in 1982 with the adoption uh, of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. There had been some uh, antecedents to that, but that's really where most of the action happens. Uh, these days. Uh, and unlike the, uh, the United States Constitution, where you have the establishment, uh, establishment clause and the free exercise clause, we just have a general protection of what we call freedom of conscience and religion. So that's the way the fundamental freedom uh, is protected. And that Charter of Rights applies to all federal and provincial legislation in Canada. Uh, but one of the, the more important parts of uh, charter rights in general is that all of them are subject to limitation. Uh, so whereas, uh, as I understand it, in your constitution, there's no formal limitation clause. And to the extent that rights can be limited, the courts have worked that out over time through the doctrines related to each specific right. Uh, in Canada, we have a general limitations clause. So every charter right is subject to what are called in the, in the charter, the reasonable limits of a free and democratic society. Uh, and in fact, in practice, most of the analytical action happens under that uh, rubric, under the, the limitations clause. Uh, but that being said, each charter right has its own uh, specialized case law for determining whether an infringement of the right has occurred. Okay, so I, I'm assuming that ultimately the kind of scope and meaning of this clause of the Canadian Constitution is kind of interpreted and implied by the Canadian Supreme Court. Is, is that correct? That That's right. So uh, in Canada, our whole system is unitary, right? So all appeals, constitutional, civil, criminal, can in theory make their way to the Supreme Court of Canada. So we don't have a separate system of provincial Supreme Courts where the appeal ends there. Uh, often appeals do because the Supreme Court of Canada has control over its docket. Uh, so only, I think the latest numbers, I think only about 10% of cases 
uh, that seek the leave of the Supreme Court of Canada to argue an appeal there are actually granted uh, leave. Uh, but it means that our court is a generalist court and it makes decisions that impact the entire country uh, equally. Given that, um, what kind of standard or what approach has the Canadian Supreme Court adopted for determining whether a particular state or maybe even private action has implicated and or violated the Canadian constitutional protections of religious freedom? Uh, so just to start out, the, the, the charter only applies to government actors. Uh, so to the extent that a private actor might have violated somebody's religious freedom, the remedy for that violation has to be found in some other, uh, in some other act. Uh, in Quebec, for example, there is, they have their own provincial charter that applies to both private and public action uh, that does protect religious freedom. But most other provinces... Uh, to the extent that they bind private actors, uh, they're only prohibited from religious discrimination. They don't have to protect religious freedom per se, and the rubrics of those analyses are a little bit different. Uh, so just to get back to your main question, uh, how do we determine whether there's been an infringement of religious freedom in Canada? The case law gets started in the 1980s, uh, and it starts with uh, a, a Sunday closing legislation. There was a federal law called the Lord's Day Act, which in general prohibited businesses from operating on Sundays uh, called the Lord's Day Act. Uh, and this starts off the ball rolling and it's a case called Big M Drug Mart, which is almost always referred to in every subsequent case. But really the test for infringement uh, gets a little bit more refined, gets quite a bit more refined in the 1990s uh, in a case called Amsalem. And in that case, the court sets out sort of a multi-step uh, test for determining infringement. So if, if a claimant is saying that their religious freedom has been infringed, they first have to establish that they have a sincere belief uh, in a practice or a belief that has a nexus, uh, that is a connection with some religious tradition, uh, and that there is some government action that has interfered with that practice or belief in a more than trivial or insignificant way. And in practice, this has been a pretty low bar to satisfy, in part because the court takes a very subjective approach to what counts as a religious belief. So you don't have to bring in a religious leader to testify as to the objective or doctrinal or uh, dogmatic validity uh, of, of the belief you're articulating, as long as you are sincerely articulating uh, and so it's a relatively low hurdle for claimants to overcome, which is why most of the action tends to happen under the justificatory stage of the analysis, where the burden is actually on the government actor to prove that the infringement is justified. Mm. So how does that work? I mean, what does the government have to show in order to to kind of make out a reasonable kind of claim for justification of government action? Is it just a kind of open-ended standard or are there sort of fixed principles or particular issues that courts are supposed to consider? So there is a, a definite analytical framework that was set again uh, in the 1980s in a case called Oaks, which doesn't come from the religious freedom uh, standard. But when I tell my students, I uh, teach my students, I say, this is the charter's greatest hit, the, the Oaks case, uh, because uh, it becomes relevant in just about every single subsequent charter case because it sets the framework for analyzing uh, the justifiability of an infringement. And so uh, first, uh, the government has to show 
that uh, the limit is prescribed by law, uh, which is to say that it's, it's in some legal document, in some definite form that is limiting the religious freedom uh, uh, or the charter right in general. Uh, then the government must show that there's a pressing and substantial objective for the limit that can serve to justify the limit. In practice, a pretty easy step for governments to, uh, to overcome. Once they've established that they have a pressing and substantial objective, they have to show that there's a rational connection between that objective and the law or action that they're trying to justify. Again, a pretty low bar. And then, fi- uh, then the, the last couple of steps are where most of the action happens. So first, the, the government has to prove uh, what's called minimal impairment uh, in, in the case law. So the government has to show that it shows the most minimally impairing way to achieve its legitimate purpose with respect to the right. And to the extent that charter claims have been successful in the religious freedom case law, it's generally on this uh, branch of the analysis that governments lose, right? And that claimants win. And then the final step is is an overall proportionality of uh, kind of a cost-benefit analysis. It's not labeled that way. The court uses the language of salutary and deleterious effects of the, of the legislation. So um, that's the rubric that the, the a government actor will have to follow. And in theory, they have to prove each of those elements on a balance of probabilities. Uh, but because sometimes these things are not susceptible of proof uh, or governments act in a kind of forward-looking way, so they, it would be unfair to put them to the burden of proof, um, the, that standard is is often relaxed to something like a reasonable basis standard. Mm-hmm. So, it, I mean, it, it seems like this, a lot of these elements are familiar from a kind of U.S. perspective, and also the kinds of things that are easy to conceptualize in relation to dominant monotheistic maybe religions like Christianity, Judaism, uh, etc. Et um, but in, in your paper, you you focus on a, uh, a First Nations group, uh, uh, the Tunaha Nation, uh, and a particular dispute that they had with, with British Columbia. So I wonder if you could kind of, in a nutshell, kind of lay out what the what was at stake, kind of what the problem was, and how the court decided that dispute under Canadian religious freedom protection doctrine. Sure, uh, I should I should take a, a moment to preface this by saying, uh, as you'll see, the dispute arises in the administrative law context in Canada, where things get uh, modified a little bit in terms of the frames of analysis. Uh, but I won't spend, I won't delay too long because it doesn't, I don't think, make a huge difference in this particular uh, case, although there's there's room to argue about that. Mm. Uh, but basically what happens is there's uh, a plot of crown land, uh, as we'd call it in Canada, or you know, state land, public land, in the province of British Columbia, where a developer wants to build a ski hill, right? What could be more Canadian uh, than that? The de- developer wants to... Make you know make a new ski hill, and the argument is uh, that they will bring lots of jobs and economic development uh, to this area. And so the the government, every time it's faced with one of these pro- projects or proposals, it has to go through a, an environmental assessment process uh, to make sure that the project is really in the in the public interest. And it's in the context of uh, making these kinds of decisions that the indigenous communities who might be affected are consulted. 
right? So in Canada, and I think this is different than in the United States, there's a constitutional obligation uh, on governments uh, to consult with Indigenous uh, groups when their interests might be affected by a by a proposed project like this. So it was in part in in furtherance of this constitutional duty uh, to consult that this conversation gets going. And it takes a really long time. So the developer proposes the project in the 1990s. The discussion goes on with two different Indigenous groups over time. Eventually, one of the Indigenous groups is satisfied that their interests are well enough protected uh, by the conditions placed on the project. And I think uh, some compensation that was offered to them in order to allow the compensate the uh, uh, the project to go through. Uh, so they kind of move out of the picture for our analysis. But the second Indigenous group, the Tunaha Nation, uh, is not satisfied. Uh, and it's quite late in the process, like some more than 15 years after this process gets going, that uh, finally the Tunaha Nation articulates one of the reasons for their opposition to this uh, this project. So from their perspective, as I understand it, um, they have already compromised to some degree because for them, the area uh, where the ski hill is is meant to be uh, is the home of what they call the grizzly bear spirit, uh, and which is an important figure in their spiritual worldview uh, and communing and connecting with that spirit is part of their, their ritual life. And from their view, they've already compromised to some degree by allowing heliskiing to occur. Uh, in that area, which is already has already started, but they say if anybody overnights in the area, if anybody sojourns in the area overnight, the grizzly bear spirit will leave, and that will destroy our ability to connect with that spirit and have that aspect of our life. Uh, so their opposition to the project ends up being framed uh, under the right of religious freedom, which was the first time since the charter that an indigenous group had made their claim in this way. You know, previously, indigenous groups had made use of that provision in our constitution that constitutionalizes uh, ab- what we call aboriginal rights, so aboriginal title or rights of hunting and fishing uh, or other kinds of traditional practices receive their own kind of constitutional protection. Uh, but that right has proven for many indigenous communities to be quite a frustrating right because it doesn't include what they want it to include uh, and to the extent that they can litigate these issues, they take uh, a huge amount of time and money uh, to get to a very uncertain result. So the Tanaha Nation decided to make their claim principally on the basis of religious freedom. And from the outset, you know, those of us who were watching this litigation as it moved from the trial to the appellate courts, uh, I think most of us thought that they had a pretty good argument on the way that the doctrine stood uh, at the time when they were articulating it. It seemed like they had a sincere belief. It seemed like the sincere belief uh, had a connection uh, to some kind of religious tradition, broadly understood. And it seemed pretty clear that a government approving uh, this kind of uh, uh, this kind of project would infringe on their religious belief, would interfere with their ability to carry out some of their uh, some of their practices. So going into the case, it seemed to many observers, myself included, that this was going to be a really interesting case for Section 1, the justificatory part of the charter, uh, to, to do some work. But the freedom of religion argument seemed pretty clear. But we ended up with a pretty, uh, a pretty different response uh, from the Supreme Court of Canada, which we can talk, talk about. 
Yeah, yeah. So, so maybe y- y- you could you could get into sort of how the court decided this particular case in a sec. I, I was wondering if you could also ref- just kind of explain a little bit what the relationship between the Tunaha Nation and British Columbia was. Like, for example, why was this crown land or public land in the first place, rather than land that belonged to to the nation? And um, sort of what's their legal relationship to to the province and to Canada in in general when it comes to land ownership? Right. So it's a complicated picture across the across the country. And, and this is not precisely the area of my expertise, but I could give a little bit of background. So uh, in Canada, to the extent that indigenous groups have claims to land, there's a couple of basic ways that they can make that claim. The first is uh, they may have been given certain lands via treaty, uh, and uh, those treaties are uh, most mostly in the middle of the country, what we call the numbered treaties, because out, out east, on the east coast of Canada, the treaties that exist are what we call peace and friendship treaties, where actually indigenous groups ceded no land uh, to French and, and British uh, colonists. Um, because the, in part because the colonists were in a weaker position at the time and, and more badly needed the assistance of the indigenous groups. So they, they couldn't extract that promise. By the time um, uh, colonialism moves to the middle of the country, so present day uh, Quebec, Ontario, uh, you start to see the, um, the, colony, the colonialists are in a more powerful position uh, both militarily in terms of the diseases that they're bringing with them. And so the treaties that we see there are principally land session agreements where the indigenous group uh, gives up its claims to certain lands, usually in exchange for some reserved land. But out west in British Columbia, uh, what we have is most of British Columbia is not subject to any treaty at all. And so in that situation, what an indigenous group has to do to prove it's what we would call aboriginal title in the area is litigate, right? And there's a separate test for proving aboriginal title, but this is part of the frustration that indigenous groups have had with the constitutionalization of aboriginal rights. So the burden is always on the indigenous group to meet all of the tests to establish title in the first place. Uh, And they have to gather quite a bit of anthropological and historical evidence to meet those tests, which means that these these cases, they take a really long time and they're quite expensive. And the resources that uh, that is are required to carry these litigation, these these kinds of this kind of litigation are not always in the hands of those communities. So they have to make some difficult decisions. And the the Tanaha Nation, I think, you know, I'm, I'm hypothesizing, but I think they just made the calculation. Well, it's really expensive to, to prove an Aboriginal title claim. So even if we thought we had title to the land, uh, it's going to be a real uphill battle. Uh, but it's really cheap to make a religious freedom claim because all we have to do is say what we believe. And as long as we're telling the truth, uh, then our rights should be vindicated or at least mm-hmm. taken into account. Um, so uh, the relationship between uh, the province and the indigenous populations is in some places unclear. In other places, there have been uh, you know, big modern treaties negotiated where some measure of self-government uh, is given to the indigenous community. Uh, the Tunaha Nation was not a party to one of those treaties, so they couldn't rely on that. Uh, and, and like I said, they, they decided not to make a title claim for reasons known to them, but you know, we can extrapolate that 
either they thought it would be too expensive or that their chances of winning at litigation were not very good, uh, or uh, they, they, you know, there might be other reasons why they decided not to advance the, the title claim. So they weren't claiming ownership in the land in this particular case. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that kind of struck me when I was reading your paper because it, I mean, it seemed like in a different historical or kind of politico geographic context that the land in question might just have been Tunaha land, in which case, you know, they could have made whatever decision they wanted to in relationship to its use. But because of their particular kind of geographical and historical position, it sounds like their ability to make land claims was pretty limited and so kind of forced them to take an alternative route than they would normally have taken if if they could just make a property claim, which I think relates to some of the points you make later in in your paper, but but I wonder if you could just spend a second talking about how the Supreme Court kind of arrived at the decision that it did with respect to the particular religious freedom claim that they were making. Right. So so what we see in the Tanaha Nation case is actually, from my perspective, quite an innovation in the law of religious freedom uh, in Canada. And as I understand it, they go in a direction that nobody argued. This was not an argument put forward by the court to the court by either of the par- any of the parties or any of the interveners, uh, which is kind of like a, an amicus curiae that we have a what's called an intervener uh, uh, process in the Supreme Court of Canada and in all the courts in the country. So what the the majority of the court ends up saying is that uh, even though religious freedom might protect your right to engage in practices in which you have a sincere religious belief. It does not protect the spiritual focal point of that practice. So, you know, put in, in monotheistic terms, religious freedoms protect, protects your right to worship God, but it doesn't protect your God, right? So that's, that's the basic maneuver that's made uh, in, in Tunaha Nation. And we might uh, have some sympathy for this claim uh, because we don't want the state to be engaged in having obligations that derive from a particular religious tradition. So if the state has an obligation to protect a god, then uh, we might see that as being a kind of what what, uh, Americans might call an establishment uh, kind of problem or what we might call a religious neutrality uh, kind of problem. But the the trouble that that, uh, San Wang and I find in in this move is that for most Abrahamic faiths, this has almost no impact, right? So the fact that, uh, you know, as a Jewish person, my God is not protected uh, by by the law of religious freedom, it doesn't matter to me because my God is omniscient and omnipotent, so it doesn't need the state's protection, right? It's, it's kind of a nonsensical uh, idea. Uh, whereas for indigenous groups to Canada, who are more likely to ha- attach spiritual significance to physical places... Uh, in the country, it has much more significance. And it's really on this basis that the Tanaha Nation loses its claim. Because what the court says to the Tanaha Nation is, what you're really asking the government of British Columbia to do is to protect the grizzly bear spirit, rather than your ability to commune or worship that spirit. So to that extent, you're out of luck because the constitutional right doesn't protect the spirit uh, itself. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and so I mean, I kind of felt like there were almost two strands 
going through your article, one of which was this sort of reflection on the history of state sponsorship of religion and how that in Canada and how that has sort of established a baseline that is not equal among dominant religions as opposed to Aboriginal First Nations religions. Um, But also this kind of point around the kind of historical connection to the geography itself, in a sense that because the Aboriginal peoples have this kind of you know, from time immemorial connection to particular locations in Canada in a way that dominant religions don't, that this kind of geographically inflected question of religious value and religious meaning arises for them in a way that it doesn't for other religions. That's right. And, and uh, I, I think, I think that's right. So a to the physical location of you know a landscape the indigenous group is much more likely to have a spiritual connection and it seems like that's a, a fairly common if not universal feature of indigenous spirituality in canada is this connection the spiritual connection to the land um but on the other hand uh you know, our uh, canada's route to independence was quite different from the united states and and one of uh one of the things that we see from that is quite a different kind of legacy of colonialism uh, in this country than we see in yours. And uh, in uh, what is now Quebec, what used to be Lower Canada and originally a French colony, uh, in the time of colonization, you see massive land grants from the French crown uh, to religious orders specifically. And many of those uh, religious orders, even in once they get incorporated into Canada, they get to keep that property. Uh, and similar things are true with respect to Protestant groups uh, in in you know present day Ontario, what was once upon a time Upper Canada, uh, so that land grants were flowing from the crown. And we detail some of this uh, in the paper, but without harping on it too much, uh, the point that we're trying to making it we we're trying to make in the paper is you know to the extent that uh, Catholics in Quebec and Protestants in Ontario have some kind of spiritual connection to the land, and you can imagine this in in terms of a graveyard, for example. Right. So uh, you might see a religious group saying, you know, the state can't expropriate this land because, uh, you know, my grandfather is buried there and I go and I visit the grave and it's a religious experience. for me. Uh, to the extent that those groups have those spiritual connections, they don't have to rely on the religious freedom right because the group already owns the land. They can rely on their property right, uh, which is a different kind of claim. But they in, in other words, the the exclusion of the spiritual focal point of worship uh, as it relates to land claims kind of doesn't matter to those more dominant groups in a couple of different ways. A, most of the time it just doesn't matter. And some of the time when there is some kind of connection to the land, they often already own the land so that they can rely on their property right. Yeah. I mean, it really seems like it's, there's a kind of deep irony there in a sense that the, the, groups that have been in the land for the longest and have the most, the deepest connection, kind of spiritual and religious connection to the land are those who are most disadvantaged kind of historically in terms of kind of having 
the kind of formal legal property rights to assert those interests. Whereas there's this kind of background history of, and I was really surprised by the sheer extent of the land distribution to religious groups, and in particular, sort of quasi-established, it seemed like, religious groups, where they just seemed to own huge swaths of land, at least at one point in time, in Canada. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, you know, that pattern changes as you moved west. Uh, So it's more true in Quebec and Ontario than it is as you move west, but it's certainly true in those places. Uh, So, you know, for example, the the Notre Dame Cathedral, the famous cathedral in Montreal, uh, has been there since the 1600s. And why is it there? And why is the whole old city, you know, patterned around where the cathedral is? It's because of the close relationship between the Catholic Church and the French colonists at the time. Mm -hmm. And it struck me as well when it came to the kind of geographic framing, like, as you say, for a lot of dominant religions, it, it isn't a focal point of the faith because, well, bluntly, the faith kind of started somewhere else. And it seems like the analysis seems kind of odd to me because if you were to transport the same analysis or kind of apply the same analysis to a different location, it clearly would not track onto what people would feel like are reasonable interpretations of kind of religious meaning and and value. I mean, I can only imagine somebody saying, well, you know, Temple the Mound is just as good as any other temple. And, you know, <laughs> right? I mean, why get yeah. so bent out of shape about that particular one? You know, the Wailing Wall, come on, right? It's just a wall. Pick another wall, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's a lot of the scholarship around that. I think that's right. You know, a lot of the scholarship around this has asked the question in terms of, as you say, what about, like, imagine there's a Jerusalem in Canada or imagine there's a Mecca uh, in Canada, could we really take seriously an argument that says, uh, while your right to worship at the Western Wall is protected, the Western Wall itself is not, right? Or while your right to make a pilgrimage to Mecca is protected, Mecca itself is not. It doesn't It doesn't make sense, right? It completely obliterates uh, the religious meaning of the place on the basis of a different worldview of how religion works. And uh, as you say, the reason that there aren't these sacred places in Canada is for the dominant religions, but only for the indigenous communities is because of the history of colonialism. Mm. Mm. So, so, so what do you think the court should be doing here? I mean, you, you, you said earlier that, that this, uh, that this decision was seen as sort of an outlier. It sounds like in the sense that like no one kind of had this framework on their radar before the court arrived at it. What do you think they should have done differently? So there is, there is in the case law, a stream around zoning uh, decisions. So what happens, for example, when a religious community wants to establish a new house of worship or community center uh, and they're having trouble finding properly zoned land, right? Like the only land available in the city is zoned for residential use rather than this the kind of use that they need. Uh, what do we do in that situation when they're making a religious freedom claim? And there is some case law, it hasn't fully been adopted by the Supreme Court of Canada, that tries to strike a balance, right? That tries to say, look, municipalities have jurisdiction to organize the municipality, right, as the elected councillors best see fit so that, you know, there's residential zones and there's commercial zones. And 
uh, we don't have too much overlap between them so people can live in quiet places, right? You know, or, or uh, for other reasons. Uh, but when there is no land available in the municipality with the proper zoning, then it might be that the zoning bylaw has to give way to the religious freedom right, right? So that uh, uh, if uh, an, a religious community that is you know, relatively new uh, in the municipality just cannot find land in the properly zoned place, they have a stronger religious freedom claim uh, to make uh, against the municipality to alter or provide a variance uh, to its zoning bylaw. And we think that the analogy works pretty well in the Tunaha case, right? So uh, for the Tunaha nation, there's no other place that the grizzly bear spirit lives. Uh, and so the, 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 the province ought to have to take in the, into account the religious freedom right, rather than what the court did was just to say, this is completely unprotected and it's not something that uh, governments, provincial or federal or municipal, have to take into account. Mm, mm, mm. So, I mean, do you kind of, like, in closing, I mean, do you, do you, do you see the court taking that alternative approach in the future? I mean, like, where do you think this new angle came from? I mean, why do you think the court introduced this this new concept? And do you see it maybe at least potentially backing away from, from that framing? And, and, and I guess I can't help but wonder, like, I mean, especially when it comes to uh, indigenous nation or indigenous peoples, first nations in the Western part of Canada, where, where it sounds like their kind of historical land ownership claims have been pretty, pretty extensively limited. I mean, should the Supreme Court be considering the potential for a group to have actually had legitimate ownership claims over a particular piece of land, even if those haven't been protected or kind of perfected for practical or kind of um, circumstantial reasons? Uh, yeah. So there's, a, yeah, there's a lot in there. So um, do I think that there will be a big change in the near future? I'm not particularly hopeful. Um, my guess is that to the extent that we see changes, it will be in response to new cases. And if I were a lawyer advising an indigenous group about making a religious freedom claim, I would say, look, the Tanaha Nation case is a real problem for you. And you might be best advised not to pursue litigation because you're going to be spending time and money uh, on a legal argument that has no hope of winning until it gets to the Supreme Court of Canada, right? If that court ever even grants leave, right? So I imagine that these cases like we won't see an, a ton of indigenous religious freedom claims popping up because of Tunaha Nation. Uh, in general, for on the title question, what the court has always preferred, and, and just to, to get back to your question about like the Western part of the country. So the possibility of making an Aboriginal title claim gets set out in the 1990s in a, in a uh, couple of, a, a big case called Delgamuk. Uh, but that case only sets the framework. Uh, it wasn't until 2015 that the Supreme Court of Canada actually uh, granted an Aboriginal title claim, an Aboriginal title claim, right? Said that this is the kind of claim that ticks all the boxes and this group actually owns the land. So 
uh, you know, the, the 1982 constitution took until 2015 to bear fruit on that particular uh, question. Uh, what the court has preferred to do is encourage governments and indigenous populations to negotiate, right, to come to their own uh, solution through comprehensive land claims agreements. So why did the court rule the way it did? I think those things are connected, right? I think what the court was, uh, was concerned about in the indigenous context is given how pervasive the spiritual connection to land is in indigenous communities in Canada, what part of Canada wouldn't be the potential subject of a religious freedom claim, right? It's the entire land. And what they're worried about is that this religious freedom right ends up becoming something like a property right, a substitute for a property right. They may also have been worried about something like, you know, the the Danish Muhammad cartoon uh, controversy, where somebody is able to say, well, the state has an obligation to protect against the depiction of my God because it's a, a it's a religious problem for me. And I, you know, this is me just speculating. The court doesn't say any of this. That may have also been in the back of their minds. Uh, do I, and again, do I think it's going to change anytime soon? I'm, I'm pessimistic about that. Uh, but I do think that there is some room at the margins, even if the court doesn't uh, go for Tunaha. So I'm currently, uh, Sen Wong and I are working on a follow-up to this piece uh, looking specifically at the question of burial grounds uh, and uh, indigenous claims uh, over uh, access to and artifacts found at, at burial grounds. And we think that there's enough play in the joints of the Tunaha decision that might allow that kind of claim to succeed by saying that it's not really the spiritual focal point of worship that's being protected. You know, we don't like the test and we don't like the law. But neither of us, I think, is super optimistic about it being changed soon. Right, right. I mean, it sounds like like you like you were just kind of alluding to, like part of the problem is that it sounds like the Supreme Court was trying to address two, in some ways, kind of almost fundamentally unrelated, although interconnected problems around kind of sovereign property ownership and religious practice at the same time. And the compromise solution that it arrived at sounds like it sort of doesn't do a good job of kind of dealing with either problem. I, I think you hit it right on the head. I, the deep problem here is the sovereignty problem. You know, the you know, by what right does the Supreme Court of Canada have any jurisdiction at all over indigenous populations? Is the deep challenge to the Canadian legal order, and all of these. Uh, uh, inconsistencies or problems with the case law might be seen as flowing from that main anxiety of what if we didn't have sovereignty. Well, Howie, thanks so much for coming on the program. This was really illuminating. And I feel like I learned an awful lot about Canadian constitutional law today. Well, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure, Brian. There's a million ways to mask 
messed this up A million varieties of stumble and fall oh, But if you stick with me we could try out together Maybe we'll find time to fail at them all Time to fail at them all. 